This episode contains frank and in some cases, very detailed discussions of sex, domestic violence, and abuse. Listener discretion is strongly advised. If you are the victim of domestic abuse, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233 or text the word START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. My name is Rebecca Godlove. Welcome to Retrofitted, a podcast for Xennials and the people who love them. Each week, we unpack, examine, and in some cases, rethink the way we, Gen X and Millennials, were collectively raised. We discuss everything from snack foods to classic rock to both historical and contemporary questions of ethics and religion, so I hope you're up for the challenge. On today's agenda... The Purity Problem, Part 4. This is the last installment of our deep dive into purity culture in conservative America. It's also the final episode of 2021 and the final episode of Season 3. I will be back in 2022 with Retrofitted, along with a brand new, much more lighthearted show that I will discuss more at the end of this episode. But I promised closure on the stories of the women I introduced to you under pseudonyms earlier this season. If it's been a while since you listened, you might want to go back and listen to episode six of this season, which discusses the plight of four women who found themselves in relationships involving domestic abuse and how purity culture played into the dynamics of those relationships. First, Lauren. If you recall, she was raised in a religious but supportive home. However, she was a victim of sexual abuse at a young age, and she assumed she invited it, making her consider herself dirty and unworthy. So here's how things continued for her. Quote, and if I'm being really honest, because of the sexual abuse, I didn't believe God really loved me. At the time, I had a transactional understanding of God. If I do this, he will do this. Fast forward to a young 20-something, not understanding why I was sexually assaulted, that I wasn't damaged goods, I found myself pregnant. And what do Christian girls do when they are pregnant? Get married. At six months pregnant, I married the father of my unborn child. He too was raised in church, believed in God, but what I didn't know yet was that he was an alcoholic. Once married, the relationship quickly turned into emotional and verbal abuse with the threat of being physically abused. The only reason I wasn't hit was because I was, quote, carrying his son. I only lived with him for two months before I got the nerve to leave. I realized I could bring a child into the constant yelling and what would happen to me when I wasn't pregnant? Would I be hit? Would the child be in danger? My parents became a safe harbor for me and my son. With the help of a ministry leader, I gave my husband three things he had to do for three months for me to come back. Number one, stop drinking. Number two, go to counseling. Number three, go to church. During those three months, I went into labor and he showed up at the hospital drunk. 
A few weeks after I had my son, I knew my husband wasn't going to change and I let him know the marriage was over. So now I'm a young 20-something single mother, sexual abuse survivor, dealing with an abusive alcoholic ex-husband. Who would want me? I was very damaged at this point. After having my son, I went on a journey of discovery. I had many conversations with God. My parents and counselors about my mindset, standards, and God's love. I met a wonderful man when my son was one and a half, and we were married when my son was four. My now husband is the father my firstborn has always known, the stable one, the loving one, the dependable one. I attempted to co-parent with the biological father of my son, but his addiction took the best of him, and he passed away when our son was six. End quote. Lauren's story is a whirlwind. And while she did have loving friends and family in her corner, her private thought life was a tangle of guilt, shame, and fear, all of which stemmed from sexual abuse and the belief that her value lay solely in her virginity. Now, personally, when I look at Lauren, I see a beautiful woman with a sense of humor who is dedicated to her job, her family, and her faith. But I know that the strength and confidence I see is the result of climbing from a very dark place that threatened to overwhelm her. I am so grateful that she was willing to share her story here because you can clearly see she did recognize abuse, involved a therapist and others she trusted and made clear boundaries. Girl, you are a queen. When the situation did not change, she was incredibly brave and stuck to her guns, protecting herself and her child and willing to face a potentially judgmental community as a single mom. I love that a good man didn't come along to rescue her, but he did help her understand that her value was not diminished by what was done to her. Now, do you remember the woman we called Courtney? She was raised in a fairly stable Catholic environment where a purity culture was sort of ever-present, but not as front and center as in other denominations. She shared how a college boyfriend bullied her into sex and stalked her during the relationship. When she did get out of that one, her self-confidence was shattered. I know that there was a content warning in the beginning of this episode, but because Courtney was willing to share with me some extremely specific details about the kinds of abuse she suffered, I want to note that the following is a long and pretty graphic testimony. If you're not ready to hear this, that is okay. You'll want to jump ahead seven or eight or ten minutes or so in the episode. We are jumping into her story after she left her first college boyfriend. I have replaced her then husband's name with Mark, her first child's name with Aaron, and her second child's name with Jamie. So here is more of her story. Quote, after that, I had sex with men because I was ruined and already thought, why not? I'd already disappointed God and my soul was word redacted. So why not? It wasn't a lot of men by most standards, but I really was emotionally damaged at that point, would drink and hook up. I felt completely empty inside, like there was something so wrong with me. I stopped drinking when my pre-med dreams were crushed because you can't major in biology and not go to the labs because you're hungover. I went to therapy. I found psychology more interesting and started to work on myself. I got my own apartment and a good job. I felt whole again. I was not willing to give up myself again for anyone. I started to rebuild. In that process, I stopped drinking on weekends. I worked instead, got a job on campus too. Now that's where I met my husband. In hindsight, there were red flags. I set boundaries early. 
I told him I was not going to have sex right away, and he respected that. The red flags were enough, though, that I stopped answering his calls. He'd unexpectedly shown up at my place when I told him I just needed time alone. One night, the night where I broke it off, he was outside my door and said, I know you're in there. I can see your light on. I was freaked out because I had told him no, and he didn't listen and tried to come over anyway. So I told him that wasn't okay via text after he left. And then the next day, he was in the stairwell of the psych department and was crying, actual tears. He told me he just liked me so much and wanted to be with me. I'd never had anyone talk to me in that way. And granted, I didn't have a good track record of men. So I told him he needed to stop showing up unannounced and agreed to meet him for a dinner date. The rest is history. And it moved very quickly. The verbal abuse started first. He'd tell me I was too sensitive when I cried after hearing it. No one had ever spoken to me that way. He was so sorry because he was brought up in a broken home with an alcoholic mother and father. Please forgive him because he'll be better, he promised. And it would be better for a while. He bought me a promise ring, insisted I was too close to my parents, needed him, and to focus on him because he wanted to marry me someday. So when we'd have sex, I didn't feel like I was disappointing God. I felt like I was with a man I was going to marry. We got engaged before grad school, married the next year, and then I was immediately pregnant with Aaron. The sexual abuse in my marriage didn't start until after Aaron was born. He had needs, and I was his wife, and if I didn't give it to him, he'd just have to find it elsewhere. Just a joke. Not really. I remember breastfeeding Aaron one night and being so tired, and he wouldn't stop. I lay there crying as I fed my child, and he was behind me. The sick thing is I didn't even label it as sexual abuse. My attorney did. He was disgusted by the things I told him about my husband. I chalked it up to him being a pig, but I never labeled it. My attorney, unfortunately, had to know these things in order for me to even get a PFA because, you know, no visible bruises. Emotional, verbal, and sometimes physical abuse followed. Physical was inadvertent. Well, not always. He punched through the bed when I was breastfeeding Jamie over something stupid. He'd kick and punch objects around me, but never me. Things got bad when I'd step in when he'd go after the kids. And that didn't happen until Aaron was about six. He'd duct tape them in their rooms, like the door, not them. The lock. He'd insist on sex during this so they'd stay in their room. I'd just do it so they could come out sooner. I'd just lay there. It was awful. When he'd do it and I'd be at work so they would keep out of his way— I started to remove the tape because I was so sick that this was how he tried to control them. It was wrong, and he'd berate me and scream at me for undermining his authority. He'd throw the Bible into it and tell me that I needed to be subservient to him. He wasn't even religious. One night, he went after Aaron with the belt. This was routine, and I ran between him and Aaron, and I lay on top of Aaron, and he beat me with it. I'd wake up to him having sex with me. I'm a ridiculously heavy sleeper. If I wanted to go somewhere other than grocery shopping, I had a two-hour window every Sunday, I had to sleep with him. He'd tell me how he'd kill me and get away with it. I'll never forget those days. And he was a criminology professor, so he was an expert in how not to get caught, he'd tell me. I think that's about it. Despite no bruises, I did manage to find some documentation. One year, he gave our dog back to the pound because I refused to come home from a visit with my mom early. The pound confirmed this for me when I was trying to prove my PFA case. They sent paperwork. 
I had to go to another state to sign releases of information to have the record sent to me from Aaron's hospital admission. A nurse was crying because he was so mean to them and me. She pulled me aside and told me that nobody ever needs to be spoken to in that way. I stayed in my marriage because that is what was taught. Even though I wasn't a practicing Catholic, those cultural values were still very firm. I think that's why I didn't recognize it as sexual abuse because he was my husband. Rape was a stranger in a parking lot, not the man you married. It wasn't until the physical abuse of my children that I left. First, though, I begged for family counseling. He said no, there was no problem. I sought help through a domestic violence shelter one particularly bad night. He never left me alone after an incident, but this day he left for a massage. I called and they made an appointment with me for the following Monday. My advice to my peers would be that having rigid views of sex and marriage does not teach what real love and respect for yourself or your body looks like. I feel that would be a better avenue. I'm not religious now, but I still believe Jesus was one prophet sent by God among many. I believe that it's impossible for our world to be so beautiful without a grand design. I believe that for some, religion is a way they feel closer to God, but for others, they don't feel it necessary. I find community and fellowship in other ways. I sometimes attend churches of different denominations when I want a different experience, but I don't feel tied to anything. I got a PFA and then a divorce six months later. I was abstinent from sex for that time, almost a year. I met a man who became my boyfriend for about three years. We had separate residences. We took things slow, but I noticed that I still had issues surrounding sex. Not spiritual, but just flashbacks, nightmares, panic attacks. He was more than patient and kind. It was healing for me that he took his time with me, allowed me whatever space I needed, and would check in with me. I'm single now, and I have more respect for myself because of that relationship and everything I've been through. I view sex as a beautiful experience with the right person. I feel empowered by meeting my own sexual needs. They're normal and healthy and not at all sinful and shameful. I'm open in talking about it because I believe it needs to be demystified. End quote. Courtney's story is a lot to take in. Even more so for me because we were friends in college and have been for years and I never knew any of this until one day she sent a message in a group chat that she was leaving her husband. And eventually this all came out. Now, Courtney has uh, a dark sense of humor, so she won't mind me saying this. It's no wonder so many middle-aged suburban moms are like really into true crime TV and podcasts myself included. Uh, We want to know how to protect ourselves and how to recognize abusive relationships before something irreversible happens. Um, Disclaimer, I am not in a relationship like her, thank God. Um, I just like to listen to true crime TV because it's fascinating. Um, I'm not being abused. should put that out there. I have a very, very awesome husband. Um, And I, frankly, I think I'm married up. Anyway, back to Courtney. She is flourishing in her chosen field, and she is raising her her children with kindness and self-respect. They don't understand all the reasons for the divorce, but Courtney has shared that they are slowly learning about the kind of father they have just by observing how he treats her. She doesn't need to share details because the kids are smart, and they know when they're being played. Her kids are old enough to begin to figure things out, and it's both liberating and heartbreaking for Courtney. I'm amazed by the level of self-awareness she has gained, the instituting of boundaries, even with her beloved kids, and her immediate desire to help and serve women in the same position. 
She is in the trenches working with therapy clients of all kinds, and she has a level of compassion for others that I, I don't actually know if I've ever seen before. Out of evil, good has come, but it doesn't make anything that happened to her in any way acceptable. In fact, her ex continues to berate her to their kids, but she's chosen the high road, and I am in constant awe of her survivor spirit. Now we're going to complete Renee's story. You might remember that she was the woman who didn't have much of a religious upbringing, but her now ex-husband did. She was turned off by the openly hypocritical way in which his family was treating her before the marriage. Things only got worse from there. Quote, after the wedding, we moved the next week. I found a job the next week. I found the apartment and with the help of my parents co-signing, we got it. My ex isn't a very good multitasker, so we agreed he could work part-time while he went to school full-time because he really needed to do well. Since I ended up having to co-sign his student loans, despite him having the GI Bill to pay for it, I worked 40 to 60 hours a week for our entire marriage between two jobs. I would cook, clean, grocery shop, do it all. He would get to do things with his classmates in the name of schoolwork. After he finished school, we moved back to California so I could go to school. I had scholarship money I earned when I was in middle school that was only good in California and had to be used before I was 30. At this time, I was working full-time and going to school full-time. He became master of the part-time seasonal jobs. He had three to five jobs at a time, but on average, he was still only working maybe 40 hours a week. He didn't help cook, clean, or do chores. He needed to be told to do something. If I got something, he wanted something. I felt like I was living with a teenager. The last semester of school, which I got my degree all under the scholarship money and nothing out of pocket, I worked full-time, went to school full-time, and had an internship at 20 to 30 hours a week. I would bring up concerns in our marriage, and he would fix them for a bit, then go back to old habits of not helping, not playing an equal partner, and I cycled for many years. I thought about divorce around year six, but my fear was, how would I be able to afford it? I figured it was something I was doing, so if I kept encouraging him, he would find the permanent full-time job, but it never happened. The cycles of frustration started getting shorter. I found myself rolling my eyes as he talked and interrupted me to say something that was off topic when we were around people, and the off topic then turned into the conversation all about him, and I was left just staring. I'd come home from being gone for 10 to 12 hours with my work and commute, and he'd be playing video games and ask what was for dinner. This got to the point where if I didn't start making something, he'd get up, make himself dinner, and say, oh, there's extra if you want some. When I had knee surgery, I was still having to change the litter box, go grocery shopping, and cook. In 13 years, he never once scooped the litter box because allergies. I did begin to withhold sex from him around year six as well. I was tired, exhausted, and I didn't get much pleasure out of it because there wasn't much that attracted me to him anymore. Attraction is much more than looks for me. I also knew it was something he wanted, so why give in to something else he wanted? He would try to wake me up in the middle of the night when he knew I needed to be awake in four hours to get ready for work. He also claimed that he didn't know he was groping me in the middle of the night. When we decided to separate, his biggest concern was if he was any good in bed because he needed to try to impress other women now. He discussed about how difficult it was to be married and in college and hanging out with all his single guy friends and seeing all these single hot girls every day. 
He accused me of cheating, especially in those last couple months because I decided to watch a friend play hockey one night. He would look over my shoulder as I texted my friends, got into my phone, probably while I was in the shower, to find names and search them up. After 12 years, here he was accusing me as he discussed how difficult it was for him being so attracted to all these other girls. Now, in regards to purity culture or my understanding of it, I never felt the need to cheat or be with someone else. I also never felt anyone else would want to be with me. I had a hard time finding myself attractive. I feel a sense of loyalty to a partner and I want that sense of loyalty in return. I don't hold much weight in faith because I feel it's used just as an excuse to do things you were taught were wrong, but you'll be forgiven. My ex did start church-based divorce support group after the decision to separate, yet we still live together due to the pandemic and him being furloughed. My new relationship is not very structured and looked at from a purity aspect would probably be an example of what not to do for many people. However, there's more respect and communication than there ever was in 12 years of marriage. And I feel how you are treated sexually will mimic how you are treated in other aspects. Perhaps, and perhaps if I would have explored that more when I was younger, I would have known how I should be treated and how I should feel and the type of communication that was really needed, end quote. I used to work with Renee and I knew her to be a tough, smart, and deeply caring person. She was very professional and honestly, she was, she was a very likable person when she agreed to share her story, I was, I was shocked. I hadn't known any of this and I hated thinking that she was dealing with such a draining and depressing marriage. And I never knew it because every time she came into work, she was professional and she was on time and she was great with customers and she didn't complain. And she was, I loved the days I got to work with her because she was awesome. I hate knowing that when she went back home, she was basically Cinderella. She's gone on to great things and I'm happy for her, but knowing that she spent so much time walking on eggshells, that really sucks. Finally, an update on Amanda, the woman who was raised in a Christian home, dated a Christian guy, and who found herself in a financially and emotionally abusive marriage. When we left off last time, she had just learned that her rent check bounced because her husband had drained the money in the account and used it for his own purposes. Quote, I was like, what is this? Into our joint account, he would put only some of his paycheck and into his own account, he would put some. I never really saw his whole paycheck. I only saw me and his daughter wearing Goodwill clothes and him wearing 50, 60, $70 shirts and brand new this and brand new that. I had to beg for money. So it, it was really, really difficult. Physically, I can remember he was always threatening, putting his hands up at me, grabbing me really, really hard because he was much bigger than me. And like one time, he, I can remember distinctly, we got into an argument at my grandmother's house and we went outside and he shoved me right on the front lawn. And another time he started hitting me in the car and a cop actually caught him hitting me in the car. And emotionally, it was a roller coaster. 11 years of being on whatever his problem was and then him dragging me along. He loved me and then he was cheating on me and then he loved me and then he was telling me I was worthless and all this stuff, you know, and up and down and up and down and never knowing if he was going to leave or if he was going out for the night or even coming home or who he was with that night. It was always 
something. And um, I, I pretty much lived in fear because one day I thought he was just going to snap at me. And in the end, I feared for my life because I felt he wanted to do his own thing, but he didn't actually want to get divorced. He said he wanted a divorce and he left and everything, but he would never pull the trigger. And then he got mad when I pulled the trigger before him. Because, you know, he wanted out. And so me and my daughter moved in with my parents. I tried to get the house. He wouldn't leave the house. And then um, I knew on our anniversary he was going to file for divorce. And I was like, well, I'm going to do it before him. So I filed the day before our anniversary. And then wouldn't you know, the day after our anniversary, I get an email from him saying that this was the hardest thing he ever did, that he was filing for divorce. And when I wrote, you know, I already filed, look for the papers in the mail, he flipped out on me because he didn't get to do it his way. I beat him to it. And to him, I was winning. So it was always, you know, he had to be better than me. He had to do better than me. And he was was very, very condescending and horrible. Like everyone who was around thought he was condescending and talked down to people. And he was so arrogant and he just didn't see it. Because whenever I said, people are saying this, he goes, what people? No, only your friends. And I'm like, well, maybe people around you aren't saying it to your face, but they're not saying nice things behind your back. Because people would ask me things like, is he on medication? And he just wouldn't believe it. I mean, we're at the point now, three years out, he still doesn't believe that any of this was his fault. He still doesn't believe that our daughter's issues are from the divorce. She just got out of a depressive episode that lasted well over a year, and he doesn't seem to think that he did anything wrong. As for the divorce and separation, oh gosh, well, the purity culture, well, I mean, it was more of what the perfect Christian family was supposed to be. And all throughout my marriage, I would see these people and they were perfect. And I cried and cried and cried because I was like, Lord, why can't I have that? Why don't I deserve that? I've prayed. I've worked towards it. Like, what is wrong with me? I just want my husband to love me. Just love me. Like, we don't have to be holding hands 24-7 and all lovey-dovey. I just want him to love me. So it was really hard seeing people who you know are like, they're like that on the outside, but everyone has their stories. Come to find out, I know, I know a lot of stories now. But after the divorce, it became even harder, especially on holidays when families would come to visit our church for services. And you'd see people who are around your age with their husbands or their wives and their perfect kids and they're all dressed beautiful. And there's me and my daughter in our Goodwill dresses sitting there and we're looking at each other like, why don't we get a family? And it's really hard. I mean, my church is so accepting. They have never ever made me feel bad about the divorce. My pastors were like, we're behind you whatever you decide to do. They said I had biblical grounds for divorce. And I do. I don't believe divorce is right in the sight of God. That puts a big what if on me if the opportunity would arise if I ever meet someone. I'm still on the fence. Did I blow my only chance for marriage? Or, well, not me blowing it, but you know what I mean. Does God want me to get remarried? So many questions I have to sort out. Even with attempting to start the dating scene now, it's all weird for me. But yeah, it is so hard being a single mom. Now, my church has never ostracized me and my daughter. Obviously, they were always helpful, always there. I mean, everyone in the church for these past three years has pitched in to help. I mean, when he said he was taking the mattress, our mattress that he had slept with so many girls on, and then he left it there. You know, they sprang into action and came and took it without me having to look at it because they knew how traumatizing it was. They helped me move twice into storage and then back into my house. They helped me remodel my house. They're still helping remodel my house. They've given me things if I need anything, if my daughter needs anything. 
it's it's just been truly wonderful. And even with all that, even with all that love, I still feel on the outside of this Christian family thing because I don't have my husband and I don't have this family unit that's supposed to represent what Christ is. Last week, pastor spoke on how intimacy between a husband and wife represents the relationship between Christ and the church. And for the most part of the sermon, I usually take notes. I couldn't even look at him because the whole time I was like, yeah, that is how a husband is supposed to be. But I got cheated and I still feel cheated. I'm actually doing better. I've actually had a spiritual and emotional breakthrough recently where I feel a million times better, but I still feel cheated. Because you can blame the enemy all you want, and sure, that's part of it, but my ex-husband made choices for himself and didn't even consider the fact that it would destroy his wife and his child. I remember I saw an email to his therapist about how he was sleeping with all these women and how I don't make him happy and he had to find out what makes him happy and he had told me that he needed to find out what makes him happy and I told him he made a family. It's not about you anymore. This is about your family. And being up in that twisted world of pornography and not feeling like he, I mean, he's a sex addict. That's just how it is. It's just really hard in a sense. You feel like you have to be perfect and you have to have the whole perfect family, the happy husband making all the money or the stay-at-home mom or part-time wife with the perfect children. And that's just not how it is. Beneath the service, that's just not how it is for most cases. And people can lie all they want. But maybe we need to deconstruct that vision because I think it's twisting a lot of people. I know when my ex and I started through our problems, we had other people say, yeah, that happened to us and we got through it. And I was like, how? You look so happy and good on the outside. How did you go through this? Why don't more people share? Why don't people bear each other's burdens more in the church? I think we would get where I could just call someone up and be like, hey, instead of thinking I'm the only twisted one out there who's suffering in their marriage. I think we need to open up more and be more open with the younger generation. You know, hey, sex is important. God created it. He made it good. However, put an important emphasis on it, but it's not the be all end all. It's a thing reserved for marriage and it is just part of the intimacy. It's not the intimacy and it's not all love. When it becomes self-centered like it did with my ex or for some people, it's very self-centered. And what's the point? It's not reflecting God's image anymore. End quote. Amanda's story has an important note in it that the others didn't. She talks about a supportive church. This is crucial to point out because historically, and yes, even still today in many American churches, the idea of divorce is more distasteful than the idea of an abused wife. I've had a friend, though I didn't interview her for this series, But she was told by her former church after admitting that her husband financially abused her and did not care about her sexual needs, but only his, she was told that she needed to submit more. The more submissive she was, the better her marriage would be. No, full stop. If anyone, a church leader or anyone else has ever said to you or a loved one, I deeply apologize because that is not God's will. First, submission in the Bible is not about slavery. It is not one-sided and is not about a woman meekly serving her husband while he has the freedom to abuse, neglect, or threaten her. That is the end of it. Too many churches emphasize the idea of a husband's headship over his family and not his responsibilities to it. A husband's duty to parent his own children, not just babysit when his wife needs to escape to Target for an hour. 
a husband's obligation and vow before God to treat his wife with love and gentleness, a reflection of how Christ sacrificed himself for the church. A husband's challenging requirement to be a man without giving in to a machismo spirit and to achieve a navigation in society that continues to belittle men's emotions. There is a balance that even if it's never attained, it has to be attempted. That is a hill I will die on. And so with this, I am closing out the final episode of the third season of Retrofitted. As we roll into 2022, I will begin on a hiatus for this podcast. I feel that so much of what I have needed desperately to say, the issues I've witnessed Zenial struggle with, the perpetual war between knowing too much and not knowing enough, the outright lies from many church pulpits, the shuddering shame faced by sexually abused women, so much of that has now been said. It's been put in out into the universe now, and I can only pray that the people who need to hear it are able to. Retrofitted is not over. I have a feeling I'll be back with another idea soon, maybe a bit more lighthearted, I hope. This has been a very heavy few months, honestly. Hearing the stories of abuse survivors, reliving my own losses, and re-examining my faith versus church tradition has been... It's been a lot. But you can catch up with me in 2022 on the OMG Becky podcast, in which my friend Becky P. and I will field random questions and talk about life in general in a much more family-friendly way than this podcast has been able to. I stand by my words that I said what needed to be said, and I am not ashamed of any of it, but I am looking forward to recording some unscripted and hopefully maybe even humorous episodes. I mean, I, I don't know if we're funny. Um, we may not be funny, and then I will be back to dredging up stories of uncondoned misogyny in the Old Testament. Yay! Either way, you will hear from me again. Thank you for joining me today. I hope that you have been educated by this episode. If you would like to share feedback or book me for a speaking engagement, you can contact me at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com or stop by Facebook or Instagram at retrofittedpodcast. To listen to and download all episodes of the show and purchase merch, please visit retrofittedpodcast.com. And if you're listening right now on your favorite platform, please consider leaving a five-star rating and a review so together we can reach a larger audience. As always, be wise and be well. song is Faster, Faster, Faster by Ryan Anderson.